0: Good morning uh, to everybody, and uh, before I start, I just want to say thank you for allowing me to share uh, a little bit about my life to date and um, and career. Um, I say life to date largely because I don't expect not to be here tomorrow, but I do expect there to still be some changes uh, in my career and my life in a very an ever changing world. Um, so my name is Jonathan Joseph, um, also known as DJ Spoonie my professional name. Most of you wouldn't have heard of me. The chances are either your parents or grandparents would have done, um, because you're quite young, so I suspect that I've raved it with some of your grandparents (laughs) in in the past. Um, I was uh, born in an area called uh, Hackney. Um, Is there anyone on this side of the room that's heard of Hackney before? You all have heard of Hackney before. Where, if I said where is Hackney, what would you say? What part of... What part of London? East? Okay. Hackney's one of the uh, London boroughs that actually straddles uh, two points in the compass. So some of it's in east, some of it's in north. I, I spent the first part of my life in the east part of Hackney and the latter part in the in the north part of Hackney in an area called Stone newington which if someone says Hackney, Stone newington is still very much a, a part of Hackney. Um, this picture was... Uh, The estate that that we grew up on, Um, that block that you can see at the back centre uh, went up 13 storeys, had four flats, four two-bedroom flats on each floor, Um, 13 times four, times four people per flat, give or take. That's how many people lived in that block. Um, As you can see, it's quite a densely populated area that I grew up, um, I think it's fair to say it was quite humble humble beginnings, uh, beginnings that some people in the room might be familiar with, some maybe not so much directly or indirectly. Um, But here we are today. What I can say um, about my time there, and that just where you can see all of those children playing, that area was not much bigger than this room that we're in. And that is where we did a lot of our playing. And I can safely say, as um, bleak as that picture may look, as cramped, as overcrowded as that picture looked, those were some of the best days of my life. And I think it's important, one of the key messages, is to absolutely make the most of every situation that life presents it to you. Some will be better than others, but if you can look back, At the ones that aren't so great and say I made something of that the chances are your life will be full take that from me um so this was the estate that I grew up on and this building here which is not the greatest picture but back then we we weren't so in love with cameras and taking images for for archive that was our local community center which served as our youth club Uh, twice a week, uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays. So if you were a good boy, as I was most of the time, my mum would allow me to go to the youth club where I would play pool and I would play table tennis. And most importantly, that was the first place that I fell in love with wanting to play music. I wasn't able to get on the decks then because the older boys that commandeered it and the youngers who... If we weren't happy being thrashed at table tennis and thrashed at pool, we'd then go and watch the older boys play table tennis because I grew up in a time where, you know, if you weren't good at something, people didn't give you allowances. Um, They they beat you and beat you until you became better at it. So you took great pride in beating one of the older boys at table tennis or pool. And um, this was the first place, like I said, that I started DJing. And the reason I put that, on there is because As simple as it As simple as it looks It led me to be able to perform Here Now is there anyone In the room that knows What that is or where that is Does it, Can you see it clearly enough Has anyone ever been there The Royal Albert Hall so that's the Royal Albert Hall. So in, in 2019, I curated a show with the 36-piece orchestra that was playing UK Garage Music, which is what myself and my partners, uh, Timmy and Mikey, as the dream team, collectively known as. And we did a total sellout show at the Royal Albert Hall. So like I said, it was from there, and maybe even from there to there. Um... I wouldn't be surprised if the amount of us that lived on that estate would f- fill the Royal Albert Hall. And it wasn't, you know, the estate wouldn't go back as far as a tree that I can see over the back there. So th- th- this, is, this is where we got to. And again, like I say, about making the most of every situation that, that life presents it. Um, I've done a slide here, and the, the font's really, really small, so I don't expect you to read it. I will sort of scan through this. It's It's my sort of professional career, largely... To date, um, I've put on there, I went to a school in, in Islington called Highbury Grove, which at the time was a really, really, really good school. Um, academically, I was really sporty. Um, I had to find a way, however, to keep my mum off my back. Not in the sense of I was a bad child, but I, I, loved, um, I loved my sport. I represented the school and district in in football in athletics, in tennis, but, you know, that wouldn't have been a a reason not to do uh, my homework or my schoolwork or retain the necessary grades. So, albeit I knew that I could have got higher grades, I got enough grades that I could keep my mum happy, that I can pass my exams, but still have a good quality of life, uh, which meant playing as much football as I possibly, possibly could. And later on, DJing because I started DJing when I was about 15. That's when I learned. So that's, that's one entry on there. Um, another important entry was in, in 1998. 1988, I got my first full-time job and I worked for the employment service in a job centre. I went into the job centre to find a job for myself and I effectively left with a job helping other people find work. Um, the reason it's so important in my career because it gave me some, uh, some human skills, it made me grow up, it helped develop my character, being around adults, being around people that weren't as fortunate as myself, and, 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 and skills that I was able to then take on and use in my everyday life. Very much skills that I still still use today. Um, I'm gonna scoot over this a lot of this because it's not, I don't find it easy talking about my career, if I'm completely honest. Um, in, in 1995, I met with two guys that would come of paramount importance to, to my career and personal life moving forward Timmy match and Mikey B. We we're on a pirate radio station. Um, does anyone know what a pirate radio station is? Why it's called a pirate radio station? Yeah. Anyone? Anyone else? Pirate? Have you heard the term pirate radio station before? Say again. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. no but there, but there, there is an element there's an element of truth in that.
1: Get the, get the, get
0: one of the and so there's elements of all three of those answers which are 100% right uh, and I'll just try and sort of uh, boil them down together. So a, a pirate radio station is basically a, a station that doesn't have Um, Government approval to broadcast It's illegal Um, Using your example of the, the copies of DVDs Or pirate DVDs When someone makes a film They're entitled to the royalties And the money that's generated from that But if someone just goes and copies it And sells it The people who originally made the film Don't get any money On a pirate radio station The people whose music you're playing Are normally entitled to publishing but they don't get any of that from a pirate radio station. So Radio Caroline was one of, if not the first uh, radio station they set up on a ship and had a really big transmitter that you could get in some parts of the UK. They weren't paying any licensing, but many of the DJs from Radio Caroline then became the original DJs of Radio 1. That's the... Say again? Tony Tony Blackburn is still there. Excuse me, because my computer likes to uh, go to sleep. Has anyone got any questions at the moment? No? Because I'm aware that I sometimes go a little bit too fast. So we went from Pirate Radio Station to KISS, which for me was a massive jump. Um, it, It was a path that a few people had taken. You get a really good Pirate Radio Station profile. No legal station at the time would take you straight from Pirate on today because it was illegal, so we had a bit of a cooling off period. We joined Kiss. We were on Kiss for about a, a, a year and a half or so. We spent six months on another station called Galaxy, and then in 2000 we joined uh, Radio One. We joined the BBC, which, you know, if I go back to um, there's a point on there five years earlier when I was leaving the Employment Service, and um, I'd been on holiday for a week, and I just re. I, I realised that I wanted a little bit more out of my life, but the job, as much as I enjoyed it, it was quite restrictive with what I'd be able to do. So I decided that I was going to resign and I was going to try and give myself more chance, a better chance of, of being a professional DJ. So I went in and spoke to my boss on the Monday, told him I was going to resign, and he said, you know, what are you going to go and do? Because you've got a great future here. And I said, ultimately... I'd like to be a DJ, I'd like to be a full-time professional DJ And he sort of sat back And he was like, you know, how far, how far, could, you, how far could you go with this? I said, you know, if everything went absolutely perfect and swimmingly well I could end up on Radio 1 And he sort of like had a little chuckle and said What, like Tony Blackburn and Dave Lee Travis Who, you know, your, your, your grandparents would definitely know those two guys and five years, uh, within five years, it was actually four and a half years later, I, I was on Radio 1. And, and I guess that's another, um, another, if not a example of if you have a dream, if you have a passion that someone else doesn't see or doesn't get, that's their business. That's their problem. You follow your dreams because not everyone sees the world in the same way. Um, and that that was mine and you know and then there was a multitude of things Um, once we joined Radio 1 you're kind of in with the big boys um, international trips I did Celebrity Mastermind I was able to work with some of the the biggest creative agencies uh, like Watchman uh, agency you've heard from someone at Watchman agency earlier today they don't bother with you when you're on Pirate but they bother with you when you're on Radio 1 so the call came in from Dean and you know, we we've done a couple of campaigns. Um yeah, you might not think it, but I've been a I've been a model in a former life as well. Um and then, you know, just scooting all the way through to oh yeah, I did strictly come dancing in two thousand and six, which was which was quite funny. I think I did it for the crack. And then in uh <laughs> I, I, and, and in two thousand and nineteen I'm gonna say that my sort of not the career culminated, but it was a real highlight to perform at the Royal Albert Hall. Um, At school, I played the trombone, um, not to a great level, but I, I played the trombone and enjoyed playing the trombone. And I was able, again, for the crack, to take my trombone and my bad playing onto the stage at the Royal Albert Hall and say that I absolutely enjoyed it. And I've played at the Royal Albert Hall. So for any musician, that is a uh, yeah, that is a great achievement even though I somewhat came round the back door on it and I'm not ashamed to say that either. Um, I'll pause you for two seconds. My
2: lovely audience. You're not really an your audience. You're here to really engage. So if you've got any questions, it would be nice to ask. I want a question from the floor. Question? Anything you've heard that's interesting or
0: Um, So this this is a thing actually It's it's a a great question Because I had spent Most of my life loving radio And even though I watched a bit of TV The medium of radio was the thing that really grabbed me So I spent a lot of time Listening to how the shows were presented Because I I quickly worked out that A lot of the music that the dj plays they all play in the daytime but what made one different to the next was how they went about their presentation so there was djs like kenny everett who had a really highly produced show to someone like chris tarrant who was just he sounded like he could live next door to you he's just really cool really down to earth but he was an absolute super and mega star so by the time I'd got onto Radio 1, I was then trying to combine a little bit of my, say, street call with what you do to have a good career as a broadcaster. So I felt ready and prepared because I'd done a lot of work uh, behind the scenes. I hope that answers your question.
2: Ladies from Brampton, I can see you, but
0: I can't hear you. Give me a question. There you go. Right, so... What's interesting about that My, my partner do, Are you a Strictly fan Is anyone else here a Strictly fan Okay I uh, Ola was my da- partner So Ola It was her first year um, It was her first year uh, Gotten really well with her and James Because she's married to, to James Of course You know that Who was one of the male dancers Did you know that How did you know that <laughs> Did I say that Okay, he was only two at the time. I mean, that's devastating. That's just like, I mean, I mean, how to make friends and influence people? Uh, there I was, just about to go out to graze, and you were still there enjoying your your milk and dummies and breadsticks. I know that because my two-year-old used to love breadsticks. Um, go on Jake, did you want to say something?
2: I mean, because it's gonna make for a better radio documentary, yeah. and this is yours, this is your project, this is my project, this is us coming in to contribute for you to come together to collaborate. It doesn't matter if you make mistakes, because we can edit.
0: So just feel free to ask any questions, it's really important. Did you notice oh, 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 no, oh, yeah, here we go. Same time? No, that's good. Did did you notice I didn't answer the second part of your question? So that's, that, that's me being a, a skilled uh, broadcaster. Right, so how far did we get? Um, we didn't get as far as we should have done. We were way better. We, in fact, I would go as far as saying, and I've never said this before, we were absolutely the best couple, but we somewhat got robbed. The, the way that the voting system was there was a little bit harsh to the point of they, they changed it the next year because the judges, the judges turned around and said, look, we're going to end up losing the best answers because of the way that the voting system is. So that was my legacy with Strictly Come Dancing, that uh, for, for 15 years, uh, 10 years, 12 years, they changed the, the, the voting. We have some more questions. Oh. Say that again? How much um, I mean, there was a lot of risk for the the people who ran it. I was just a, a mere DJ who would turn up. But we we you know we wouldn't turn up with record bags we used to go in with our records in bin liners we'd go in them with you know maybe a rucksack you you couldn't sort of go in there because people would report oh, there's that noise and there's loads of DJs coming in there and if you got if you got caught in the in the studio broadcasting it was a criminal offense they'd confiscate the equipment and they'd confiscate your records of which you know records are really expensive then um and you wouldn't want to lose part of your collection so yeah it was it it was dangerous luckily I was never in the studio when there was a raid um but we had quite strict rules sound levels the amount of people that could be in there um times of arriving at the studio so it was a well-run operation albeit that we were on the uh the other side of legal (laughs) um um again that's a that's a that's another great question and i think that with that time when i was on holiday away from work i definitely said i want to do something else um at that stage i didn't uh go straight into DJing because i wasn't established enough so at the time i was working and earning and had financial responsibility so i couldn't just hang that up and then step into a world where it's very uncertain but um I definitely knew from being out, going out, listening to radio, being in clubs, hearing other people do it, that I 100% had the ability, but I then needed to just make that next step. So could I put my finger on an actual specific date and time? No, but I I clearly defined there was a period where I can go, it happened between this date and that date, and then I would, you know, I had a full-time job and then I went, part-time four days a week, because the DJ and bookings start to come in. And when I gave that extra day to the DJ DJing career, it grew exponentially and it went up again. So then I had to go back to my boss and say, look, can I go three days a week? When I put that day into it, it grew again. And then I had to go back in and said, I have to resign. And I said to myself, if I could be a full-time professional DJ for one year, then I'd be happy and I'd go back to work knowing that I'd given it a good crack and it had been okay. And that was in uh, 1997. And um, yeah, luckily, fingers crossed, hard work and a little bit of luck because you always need a bit of luck. But the harder you work, the luckier you get um, that I'm I'm still here, being able to spend the morning sharing my experiences with you guys. You had... You had Brilliant. I mean... My passion for music, I, I think it comes from from my mum. Um because we you know, we 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 didn't have much, I think, on a average day-to-day basis. It wasn't a um let's just say we didn't have much. But what I saw um was when my mum my mum at her happiest was when she was listening to music or whatever the problems or the troubles or the challenges she was trying to overcome always seemed to be just not as bad with her music then I realised that as I got a little bit older I could start gauging my mum's mood from the music she was listening to so then I had another relationship with music because I realised that this is actually a really powerful thing that it can affect and set people's moods and I think that I became more and more in love with music and then started developing my own sort of interest you know my mum was from the Caribbean so she was very much into uh, soca and calypso and reggae as you could imagine and then me growing up in the 70s and 80s I loved that stuff but then I was also into people like Madness and uh, The Specials and Blondie um, and Loose Ends and Soul to Soul as I got a little bit older so yeah, I I I I would have to say my mum, um, my mum was where my my love of music came from. <laughs> so I, I I mean again I'm smiling and when 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 I say family it was really my mum. I didn't I didn't grow up with my brother uh, with my with my dad. Grew up with my three younger brothers, and. I, I remember I was 27 at the time. I had a one-year-old child. I'd been living out of the family home for eight or nine years. I was fully self-sufficient, but I knew when I went to speak to my mum about it that she would challenge my thought process. Now, not challenge my thought process in a sense of trying to talk me out of it, but she would want to make sure that I'd thought about what I was doing enough that I had factored in contingency I'd factored in some what ifs, and once we had that conversation, she was like, "You know brilliant, go ahead, go and go and do it. Um, I know it's something that you have spent a lot of time practicing and doing, and so you know go forth, but it was um it was a great exercise, and it's always another takeaway from this is to surround yourself with." Good people, good counsel, because good counsel, I truly believe, will be top-ranking, single most important thing that you can control. The people that are around you that give you advice, that pick you up, that check you when you're misbehaving, that pat you on the back when you need a pat on the back. Um, and this might not be the most popular thing that I'm going to say in front of in front of your teachers and educators, but I do believe that your friendship group and your counsel will serve you in life as much as what you learn in the classroom. I think that my life, I look at having a very good education, but I also know other people that had good educations and had bad counsel and their lives haven't been nowhere near as successful as they would have done. Apologies now. Apologies now. Yeah. I think it it changed um, again, and, and I'm taking my mind back now because jazz was jazz was about one when I when when I went full time. But what I knew at that stage was, and maybe I might have done it six months or a year before, had I not had the responsibility of providing for a child. So absolutely, that was that was in my that was in my thought process. Um, What I will say though, aside from music, what it did make me do was look at the world in a different way from the perspective of wanting the best for my child, which happened to be a girl. And I knew, I realized at that stage that the world was unfair, Um, that it was very, very male dominated. You had males that were making decisions for females. And I knew my daughter being black, that being black and female, stood at an even greater disadvantage so i was like well i it's imperative that i make the most of this situation and try and address as much balance as i could in the world now one man waging that war not that i'm the only person but waging that war um it wasn't easy but it's something that i would have to keep doing and then i had i've got another daughter um so now i've got i've got two at least two reasons um to try and make it a little bit a little bit fairer, um, so I try and give. You know, the music industry again, from the management and the running side of it, is very male dominated. So I try and give, you know, where, where, where possible and where required, I've given sort of help and advice to to, to women that have wanted to get into the music industry, um, because again, it's you know, it's it's just not as balanced and as and as fair as it should be or it could be. And I think anytime you have any kind of balance, diversity, inclusion, it makes that organization richer. Um, different experiences, um, thought processes just makes that output better. I truly believe that. Any more? Okay. Um, sorry, do you have any regrets in your <sighs> Any regrets? Um, I think I would have... What happens is, it, it, again, and this this is maybe more of a, a life thing than a DJ thing, that when things are going well, we all think things are going to stay going well. The hardest thing to do when things are going well is to go... This is going to stop tomorrow. Not being pessimistic, but just being realistic. And if I have, if there's something that I could do again, I would ma- maximise even more the time that I spent on on national radio. And not that I didn't, but I think that I could have done more, maybe with hindsight. So at the time, I, it's hard to say it was a regret. It was an unbelievable six years on on Radio 1. But when I look back, I think, right, could I have... Made it 10 years. Could I have set myself up in a better way? Was I just sort of comfortable? Did I get too comfortable just being on the BBC? Um, maybe for me, for the high standards that I set myself, maybe I did. But, you know, if I look back, that will be uh, maybe not a regret, but maybe something that I would do differently. Um, so I I actually was on Radio 1 for six years, but I was on 5 Live um that ran sort of concurrently so I was on 5 Live for seven years so I was still with the BBC for four years after I left there but I was doing my football because I'm a big football fan lover of football so I was able to do music on Radio 1 and talk on on 5 Live um left there in 2010 and then I had four years of just doing my DJing and other sort of projects I'd sort of diversified a little bit outside of entertainment um and then in 2014 I started working for the Premier League so I now for since then I I do three shows two shows now a week for the Premier League around the world um as a TV presenter but all of that all of that stemmed from stemmed from from the music really um and you know that you know the football stuff um and just uh, I've put on here just some career highlights of um, interviewing um you know David Beckham I've interviewed Sir Alex Ferguson if anyone knows who Sir Alex Ferguson is um if anyone doesn't you can google him uh, interviewed him interesting thing about that was he had um had a bit of a fallout with the BBC and hadn't spoken to the BBC for 7 years and it's a requirement, it's a contractual requirement of a football club that after every game they provide the manager or the assistant manager have to go and do a press conference. It's in their contract. And for seven years, with regards to the BBC, he sent his assistant manager to talk to the BBC. So I was the first person to speak to him on the BBC post that. Um, so that, that was quite a, um, quite a landmark in my career. And I, I also reminded the other day which is an absolute liberty in my own shoes that i forgot that i interviewed michael jordan and um, michael jordan came to came to london and and mikey that mikey nike asked me to <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah i mean <laughs> uh, 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 nike asked me to, to 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 come and interview him on behalf of uh on behalf of them which I mean, how I could how I could forget that I don't know. But such was the amount of things that I've done. I'm a big golfer. I love golf. 2009, I was invited to Valhalla in Chicago by the captain at the time, Nick Faldo, to come and be with the Ryder Cup team, um, which was an unbelievable experience. And if you, I mean, is it? Does anyone here play sport? What sport? What have we got here? Right, so you know, you know about the Ryder Cup in tennis terms. It would be like being invited to um, the Davis Cup to come and hang out backstage. Um, you mentioned cricket. It would be like that would be the equivalent of being being at Lords for the Ashes. That's you know, this was a big, big, big achievement from someone who grew up in very humble beginnings. And then I've put selling out the Royal Albert Hall with Garage Classical at the bottom there because. You know, to walking out onto that stage, um, a truly world-class music venue. Um, because I, because I DJed, really. That's that's what I put it down to. Just a couple of, couple of pictures there. Sir so Alex Ferguson, uh, top right, uh, bottom right. That's Ian Wright, Vernon Kay, two good friends of mine. Jody Kidd, the supermodel, and the guy in the purple shirt, Tiger Woods, greatest golfer of all time. Um, Timmy and Mikey there, looking young, fresh and handsome. They've never looked like that ever since, that photo shoot. And then um, I I also um, hosted a few red carpet events at Leicester Square for the the premieres. That was for Hancock. So um, that's Charlize Theron, who is, wow, she's my superstar crush. I'm not ashamed to say that. Um, Jason Bateman, brilliant, brilliant actor. If anyone's seen Ozark on Netflix... That's the main character there, and and the great Will Smith, you know, just hanging out with Willie. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, yeah, you
2: know.
0: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Again, I think there's. Um, yeah, I mean, thanks for, thanks for putting that out, Dean. There's a, a, a genre called UK Garage, um, of which myself, and my partners, and, and a few other key players were quite instrumental in bringing to the nation and the world's ears um, around the mid-90s. I think that us having such prominent radio shows on KISS and Radio 1 meant we were able to take it further than anyone had, had taken it before, not because we the genres or we were it's not for me to say we were the main men but we we were quite instrumental because of the the platform that we were able to give it and some of the artists that sort of came through uh uk garage um miss dynamite so solid crew mj cole wookie um and and uk garage then was the founding father uh and i'll say this for for grime so when you hear the likes of Skepta or Wiley or Stormzy or Kano, these guys, Stormzy to a lesser degree because he's much younger, but the likes of Kano and Boy Better Know and Wiley um, all kind of came out of UK garage. They're still a little bit, they're a little bit younger than us, but that sound, um, like I said, if you're on a family tree, garage would be the, the father of the father of grime um and maybe the grandfather of uh, of UK rap or trap or drill or drill which is yeah we yeah there's a bit of dispute on that which <laughs> which yeah we don't really uh yeah we try yeah it's the same bloodline but we yeah we don't take any credit Yeah, Garage was, Garage was a feel-good music. And I as a, mu- as a music lover, I'm never one to... Um, I don't like to put down a genre because I think that's that's ignorant to do that. I think that I came into music and fell in love with music because of the positivity. The positivity in a lot of the lyrics. I grew up listening to Bob Marley, who I, I think is a, a prophet, but he just happened to be a, a musician. that The... the the Calypso and soca music all had positive messages of love. So for me, I have a slightly different relationship with how stories are told. So when I hear um, too much and too many records that have too many negative messages in them, it just doesn't sit comfortably with me, especially when we're trying, and I say we, my people trying to get away from a lot of the messages that are in that music. That said it has provided a lot of people with a way out it has given a lot of people an opportunity to help their families immediate generation and the generation behind so from that end it's good but some of the, some of the messages and the content are not my sort of personal choice I know that might make me sound a little bit old imagine what my children say um, if you asking, how you? you're going to ask anyway aren't you how old do you think I am? Well, you do not look very old. You look really young. And you keep saying that like, they're way younger than us. So I'm um, not jealous. I'm not. are you know, no ha- <laughs> Don't be jealous. I think, I think Stormzy is 26 now. 25, 26. Does anyone know? Stormzy's not that old. Is he? Can we, we get a Google check on that? Huh? Okay. Uh, the reason i'm gonna say that it, it will make sense in a minute no he's not my son no it's, it's, can you imagine he's twenty seven all right tw- twenty seven so storms is twenty seven my daughter turns twenty five in two weeks i'm fifty one huh you said f- you guessed fifty yeah. one. What do I look fifty one? Yeah, nineteen seventy. Yeah, yeah. There you go. You should, quick maths. Um, so yeah, I, t- I, I was fifty one on Friday. Just gone. Thank you very much. And I d- and I don't mind. I don't mind you asking. Yeah, I I, it's fine. I, I'm. 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 Uh, I've, I've. I've never smoked. I've never drunk alcohol. I drink a lot of water. I exercise. I moisturise twice a day. <laughs> that's it. Nothing more, nothing less. It's just it's easy, really. Uh, that's that. Um, I've put this slide on, and and, and not because I expect um, answers. Um, call them rhetorical questions if you want. But just a couple of things for you to, to think about for your life. And the reason I'm putting this here is because These are things that I still employ in my life on a day-to-day basis. Um, Aside from my entertainment, I've done various uh, property deals, projects, and if I take it out of the music and I'm going in and I'm not a builder um, by any stretch of the imagination... The first question I'll ask myself is, what do I want to achieve? So if I look at a house or I look at a project, I'll ask myself, what is it that I want to achieve from this project? Is it, is it money? Do I want to restore the building? Do I want to convert it into flats? Do I want to extend it? That will be my first question. The next and the single most important question then is, how are you going to get there? Because you've got to work out from the want to the achievement How do I get there? Now, sometimes there's a direct route. Sometimes that route's gonna take three or four stops, but you've got to map that out at the beginning. And I can put that on there. And those two questions and the next, which I'm gonna come to, will apply to whatever it is that you're gonna do in life. Whether that be, if you're gonna get to university, what what do I wanna achieve? I wanna go to uni, Right? How am I gonna get to uni? And I don't mean by the train or driving. I mean, what grades have I got to achieve? If I've got to attain certain uh, certain grades, how much commitment is that going to need? What have I got to sacrifice? Am I on path? am I on route to achieving that? and if not, what is going to get put by the side? And then the last one is who can help you on your journey? now the world increasingly is a small place now because of the internet, access to people, people with way more experienced than you, people who have absolutely achieved what you want to achieve. So the simple way of putting that is why would you mess around trying to work out something if someone could show you exactly how to do it? And one of my favourite sayings in the entire world is a smart person learns from their mistakes but a smarter person learns from someone else's. So just think about that. Oh, have, well, have I finished? No, 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 no. Have I finished? No, 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 no. I'm not finished yet. I can't, worry, no. Sorry. So, 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 so this is a thing. You know, we will have. You'd have teachers. You'd have educators. You will have. You've got the internet. You've got Instagram. You've you've got DMs. You've got so many people who, whatever it is that you want to learn how to do. If you want to be a cricketer, you can study a cricketer with a similar physiology. If you're a batter, if you're a bowler, if you're a wicketkeeper, whatever it is that you are, that you want to be, you can find someone that does it, that does it for a living, that has done it for years, and model yourself. And I don't mean become a clone. I mean, just model, take all of the good bits that you want from that person, at least one person, and put it onto your own. Um Did everyone hear that? Yeah? Okay. This question, I was speaking yesterday. Um, I had a meeting yesterday, and um, the guy, he, he started out, he used to be my accountant, but he's now a friend, and his son is 26. Now, my accountant, I don't want to go too far into it, but they're really well off, and his dad was really well off. So his son has been born into a really privileged situation through no fault of his own I'm not going to hold it against him but this is the situation that his son has found himself in but his son does extreme marathons so he will go to Antarctica or go to um, the Sahara Desert and run 35 miles then or 50 miles in a day or whatever it is that he that he does and I said to his dad that it's important he does this stuff Because life would be very easy for him, otherwise. He'll never know what it's like to wake up hungry. He'll never know what it's like to do without. He'll never know what it's like to be looking at a bill thinking, I can't afford to pay that. And unless you take yourself out of your comfort zone, so you can occasionally be comfortable being uncomfortable, life is very different. So things that I do... um, my fitness regime often takes me out of my comfort zone. Stepping into doing, um, doing property takes me out of my comfort zone because there's so much stuff to learn um, about builders, about personalities, the legal aspects of it. I think giving yourself challenges, finding something to do that you know is gonna, not going to be easy rounds our characters out. So when it came to doing um, the Royal Albert Hall, before that I did the Barbican and I hadn't played, at that time, I hadn't played my trombone for 33 years. 33 years I hadn't played my trombone. And when when I, when I we got through that we signed the deal that we were gonna do the Barbican, I said, I wanna play the trombone on stage. I wanna go up in front of that orchestra and play the trombone. 33 years I hadn't and that meant I had five months to be able to learn my piece which is effectively going back to scratch um just to give myself a purpose and I did it and listen I did it was okay but I did it more importantly I did it and that's the kind of thing that I uh that I will do for myself and again it's a long really long-winded answer but I hope yeah So this 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 is the um, you know the the question the why 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 like why are you doing it, and if I can ask you why are you doing it, I then can ask you why are you stopping doing it. Um, the why is always very important. I've always been quite a uh, a quite self motivated and driven person, and I think that's largely because of the situation I was born into, and I knew that I would there was only going to be one way I was going to get. What I wanted out of life, and that was going to be to work for it. Well, there's two ways I could have gone: <laughs> the other side of the road route, or or the legal route. And because I didn't really want to spend any time in in prison, um, I said it was going to have to be hard work. And you then get into a good habit. The earlier you can get into good habit, it then becomes normal. So people often make a, a big deal about ah. Oh, God, I can't believe you don't smoke, don't you ever have like one drink and I'm like no, it's, it's, it's a habit for me it's not, I don't know what it's like to have a hangover I don't know what it's like to wake up with a sore head or not be able to run for the bus because I'm unfit because it's something that I've just done regularly from a, from a young age so you just try and put good habits and good systems in place for yourself as early as you possibly can 100% there for the music and the vibes and creating the vibes, creating the atmosphere. That's it. That's it for me. And you know what? That's why I can, I can play in front of five people that want to have a good time or 5,000 people at the Royal Albert Hall. I've actually DJed at Wembley Stadium when it had 95,000 people in there. But for me, I'm, I'm, I'm as happy... Playing music To four people in my house Because it's just about The music and the vibe The zeros are You know The zeros are just the zeros After a while The zeros are just You know Yeah, the music, the juice? yeah. But I've kind of cut down on that Because it's got a lot of the sugar It's got too much sugar in it <laughs> Huh? I think he meant white cranberry juice I never make out ever, ever, Everyone knows that I'm a A, a non-drinker Um <laughs> Yeah? I'm nearly finished now, so it'd be a a natural break if you don't mind, and and then I'm I'm done. Um, (laughs) Just the last few words for me. Um, Listen to people with more experience. I know the tendency for young people is to think that we know more than our parents and our teachers, but we never, ever do. So just forget that. We never know more than that. Read as much as you can. I wish that I read more. I read a bit. I don't read enough um, and that's as long as you know now we have the ability if, if we struggle with reading formally audio books is another great way to, to read or to at least consume that, that information give it your best effort I know it sounds really obvious um, if you're going to do something if you're going to take time to do something do it properly or just don't bother Take your time and go and do something else. And that might be doing your assessment. That might be cleaning the bath. Um, I've caught myself yesterday taking the water out of my shower. and thought, why are you doing it like that? And I thought, well, because if you're going to do it, just do it properly or just don't do it at all. And I think about that even when I'm cleaning my own shower. Um, Just the last couple of things. Look for a learning in every setback. The reason I say that And as you you become older and you become more exposed to the world, things won't go your way, right? But don't become despondent because something didn't go your way. Because in that experience, there will be something that happened that you can take away from it. And if you're a cricketer and you bowl six balls and you get hit for six every time, yes, ego will tell you to be down on yourself, but there will be... Something you take in that. Did I bowl too long? Did I not vary up my my, my bowling technique? There always will be something to learn from every, every setback. And then that setback becomes a lesson. And there are no wasted lessons. And finally, I said it before, your network and your friendship groups are critical. Uh, They really are. If you have a good friendship group, good counsel, you will make some success of your life. I'm I'm certain of that, um, and Justin will be glad to know. Uh, that's it.
3: Okay. Hello, I'm Caleb. I am, I am a writer, primarily, but I'm also a photographer and a filmmaker. Um, I would say that writing is my like primary mode of expression. I've been writing since I was like five or six years old, I reckon. Um, on my first book came out in February, which I'll come to. But the week after, my mum pulled out this short story that I'd written when I was ten, and it was terrible. But it was also like the kind of like beginning of like something that would, yeah, that would like really form my life and the person who I am now. Um, so yeah. I grew up, like, reading a lot. Um, I was saying to Dean earlier that when I was, like, six or seven, I kind of grew bored with all of the books that we had at school, and I asked my local council by way of my mum to, like, just fit a library inside our school and to try and, like, fit more libraries around the schools in the local area where I grew up because I couldn't... Yeah, like, I just very quickly was, like, I've run out of things to read, and if I'd run out of things to read, I wasn't rereading the other stuff. Um, so I guess that's really where the love of the love of literature and the love of, of reading came from. Um, but I come from a big family. My mum is, but well, both my parents are gone. In my mum is one of ten, and my dad is one of twelve. And so there'd always be these like enormous family gatherings, and we'd like, sit around telling stories. Um, and stories would just go on and on and on, and they'd like take on these like winding and meandering routes. But it there's a form of that in itself is a form of storytelling that often escapes the archive. It escapes kind of being put down and being documented. Um, and so for me as a writer, those I'm really interested in, that, in what has escaped the archive and what has kind of escaped the histories that, that we do know. Um, as a... I mean, I could talk a little bit about my... I'll talk a little bit more about my photography later, actually. Um, Writing-wise, my work has been featured in... New York Times, BBC, Esquire, GQ, Vogue, The Washington Post, the Stylist. Um, last year, my a short story that I wrote was shortlisted for the BBC National Short Story Prize, um, which was a real surprise because, you know, as we all know, like COVID struck last year in March and I'd entered this story at the beginning of January. Um, and I was out in like August time with my literary agent um, and the phone number like kept ringing and ringing me, and i was oh, i'm I'm with someone, so I'm just gonna like call this person back later um and then i I came back to my phone about an hour later, and there was a message like, "Can you call us quite urgently? We're trying to deliver good news um which was really nice, but the yeah like it was a it was for someone who has written for so long um i yeah, it was really nice to have this work recognized on on such a large platform um the story itself was read out by ben bailey smith who's also known as doc brown um he is the brother of zadie smith who is my favorite writer so that was really lovely um and we were broadcast on radio four and it was kind of the beginning of it was really the beginning of my writing career as i know it now um i was planning on playing some of it but i don't know if the speakers will allow I'll make the link available <laughs> so that you, could, so you guys can listen
2: to it. Later.
3: It might be a bit quiet.
1: since its very beginning by foregrounding the best original short writing for the most exciting contemporary writers. This year's shortlist has been praised for its energy, experimentation and versatility. The 2020 winner will be announced live on BBC Radio 4's front row on Tuesday the 6th of October. Today's shortlisted entry day's rain sneaks under raincoats so we might watch bare trees bear food. Pray for summer to come and go without incident. This summer where we rage is hot as the red sun does. Pray the young man wasn't a friend or a friendly friend. Pray the grief passes. Pray we learn what to do with this anger. Pray for water. Pray for winter. Pray it is too cold to venture outside. Pray we stay in our yards as Slows the brain is a pleasure, not a necessity. Pray we forget, but not for too long. Pray for autumn, pray for winter, pray for spring. Pray we don't suppress the fear. Pray the ache stops.
3: Yeah that was like that was a really special moment for me I think hearing my own story on on the radio like that like I have been listening to people's stories on radio 4 for like the past decade or so um and to hear my own work read in that way and and to hear it put together in such a in such a dope way like the producer was really wonderful and allowed me to to kind of work with him to choose the music um they wouldn't let us have anything from America because like the rights were too expensive. I tried to get like Kanye once, and they're like, "No, nah, no, nah, that's that's not <laughs> that's not allowed." Um, but yeah, that that was really special, and I think even um, even though like there were five of us who were shortlisted out of I think one thousand eight hundred entries, um, and even though I I didn't win, it was such like a special experience, and it opened a lot of a lot of doors for me, and it also meant that I was able to to engage with the public in the way I hadn't done before, like I was able to do events, um, I was able to actually like go and be on the radio, which was really wonderful, Um, and it was a really, it was like a bonus for me, because my, um, my novel was due to come out a few months later, and I just hadn't really expected that I would be in the public eye so early, what's up? Yeah, I think that I mean so much of. I always get the question with my work: is it autobiographical? And so much of my work is not necessarily autobiographical, but it's very personal. Like I try to work from a place where I'm like, okay, so how am I feeling, or what is a feeling that I felt, and what has what is something that I felt really deeply, Um, and then I construct fictional events around that. Um, I really admire people who. Like, I don't think of myself as an essayist. I really admire people who can really, like, cut to the bone of, of feelings and really write very clean sentences. But for me, like, I'm I'm very much someone who likes to build an atmosphere and build, like, a vibe and, and kind of help use that to really help you feel what I may have felt at one point. Um, also, if anyone else has any question, other questions, just interrupt me at any point. Um, so, yeah, so my talk about a little bit about my novel um so i uh in order there are lots of different routes to getting published but the most sort of like traditional or straightforward route is you know you have a book you have write your book or you have an idea and then you approach a literary agent and then they approach publishers so they're kind of like your go-between they're the champion of your work and really of you because so much so much of literature and like media industries is is also about like you being someone who can be seen, like forward facing, who can be marketable, um, and so I connected with my literary agent in May of 2019, and I actually came to her with some nonfiction, with some with some essays that I was writing, um, and she was the one who suggested that I should write a novel, um, and she she was like, you know, okay, you've got this you've got this collection of work that's, that's non-fiction, but is really like bordering the line between fiction and non-fiction. And she suggested that I should go away and write for the summer. So between May and September, I wrote continuously, halfway through that. Um, I quit my part-time job where I was like, I kind of was just like clocking in and clocking out. Like I was just like, okay, I can pay my rent if I'm working here. Um, yeah, and so I quit my job and just solely concentrated on writing. Um, and in September, I, I had this this full draft, which uh, which became Open Water. And when when I sent it to her, there was this I didn't really know what to expect. And there was this moment where, you know, I, I'd sent across this work, it's like 50,000 words. And it's a lot, it's very personal. It's like, it's very, it's not, like I said, it's not autobiographical, but a lot of it feels very real. And I sent off this work and I asked her, I said, like, oh, when can... We expect to hear back from these publishers, and she she literally like, she shrugged she was like honestly it 's a waiting game like it could be like two days, it could be two weeks, it could be like six months um, and that was such like a i don 't know there was a real like feeling of vulnerability in that moment because I was like, oh man like i've been like pouring and pouring and pouring myself into this work, and now I just kind of have to like have faith that it will work out and and just wait." Um, the day after we sent it across, there were two publishers who were interested, and the day after that, like another ten, um, and the book ended up going to auction. So there were like nine different publishers who were bidding on it at at mm-hmm. one time, um, and I eventually I went with Penguin because it had always been like a childhood dream to have something published for Penguin, but it was also very clear that they knew what they were doing when I got into that meeting, um, and so that was that was October. 2019 and they immediately scheduled the book to come out in February 2021 Um, and that time is to really is not only for like redrafts and edits but to also work out a plan for how we want the book to come out into the world so wondering about like marketing campaigns and doing social media and also having different events um, which has been really has been like a real challenge in the face of COVID because Whereas most times I just get programmed for like lots of like public events, and you'd sit in front of people, you'd be in like bookshops. Um, a lot of it has had to be virtual, or you've had to work out how you can hold an event outside, um, with which like British weather is just really unforgiving. So a lot of the time you're just like, ah, uh, well, <laughs> it's probably best we don't do this. Um, but it's yeah, like it was leading up to, I guess like a month or so out, I was, I was like, ah, oh, like there's there's really this book is really coming out, um, and that was—I remember like a really specific moment. I was alone, and like I was like holding the book for the first time, and I was just thinking, like, man, like this is this is something. Like, even if like two people buy this book, I've I've done what I needed to do here. Um, but if you don't mind me saying, it's done really well. It's <laughs> done. It's done much better than I than I expected it to do. It was listed as observers. Uh, one of Observer's like 10 best uh, debut books of the year Um, and its first week it debuted at number 16 on the Sunday Times bestseller list um, which is really something it's being published here in the States uh, in Italy and Germany and France and Spain Uh, I think it's being published in Israel in Taiwan um, which is like yeah it just feels like a not yet (laughs) not yet but it's a, so Penguin bought all of the they bought all of the UK and Commonwealth rights, so if it's a country that comes under the Commonwealth, you can buy it there. Um, but it's not been translated yet. Um
2: the question you said that you wanted to be with Penguin and there was a bidding war. Mm-hmm. Uh, were they the highest bidder? No.
3: no, no, they weren't. So you actually decided that, okay, these are the people that get it. Yeah. And this is I want to be. yeah. When it So there were there were 12 to start with, um, there were nine who were really serious about it, and then by, there were five rounds of bidding, and by the fourth round, there were, there were four who were like very clearly ahead of everyone, um, so Penguin, who I went with, another side of Penguin, um, Vintage, Daunt Books, and One World, who actually, we were talking about Marlon James earlier, I don't know if anyone has read any of Marlon James's work, but they they publish him, um, and <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was yeah I I mean I remember telling my I remember telling my dad so like it was really between those two strands of penguin, um, and I went home after like I'd gotten the the last the, those last two bids and I went and.
0: And I told my dad, and he was
3: asking. He was, also like, oh, so like, you know, how much are they going with? Uh, and I told him how much Penguin, who I went with, went with. And I was like, he was like, but Vintage have offered you so much more. And I was like, yeah, but they, I don't think that they have what it takes to bring this book out into the world. Was your dad trying to recoup? Absolutely. He was. I mean, I think he was. I think it was like the. I think it was like a tangible thing for him because the difference was like six figures versus like a high five figures, and so he was like, "I don't understand why you're turning this down," um, and it took a lot of explaining to him to be like, "It's it's more than just like the the money for me. This is about expression. Like I'm like I have the luxury right now of being able to like gamble on myself and being able to say like this might work out, it might not, um, but I want to but I want to trust my instincts and say like if this." works out, then I know that, that I went with the what my gut was saying. You also have to
2: feel the team as well, don't you? Mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm. If they don't get it, they can't sell it. Mm-hmm. So that's really important. Yeah, Penguins, like, um, don't forget your question, I'm coming to you. <laughs> Penguins, like, a, their whole team was just very, they brought, I had, the meeting with Vintage was really lovely, but it was just one person, and the meeting with Penguin was like, a, like everyone here like it was just like and it was me in like one corner and they were just like so this is what i do here and this is what i do and this is what i could see this ha- like happening with you here um and it was different because it, it inserted me into the world of literature as opposed to oh like this is a book that you have like it, they were thinking of me having a career rather than just selling one book they so like the first like the early rounds are really they're like kind of they're quite small bids so it's just to kind of get your foot um foot through the door um aside from one i w- there was one editor who i met with who really who really loved the work but he penguin is like a, is one of like the big five publishing houses and this editor was at one of the smaller independent publishing houses and he knew that he couldn't win the book so he bid something astronomical in the first round and drove everyone else's bids up so it meant that like i came out on top which i'm always really grateful for yeah like he just like he just, just like well you know it's no i'm not going to win it's no skin off my back but you can win here um which is really cool but yeah they after each round they're told what the highest bid is um and they're encouraged to keep going and going and yes, yeah, so for the most part, you're pitting the publishers against one another. Yeah. yeah. Classic case
0: of when the little people stick together and
3: can take on the big yeah. It's true. I think it, I don't know. It's even now, and thinking about it and explaining it, there's so much that I don't know about the publishing industry. It's still so new and and fresh to me. Um, but it's very clear when someone has your back. Like it's very clear when someone like wants the best for you. Um, yeah, and this is, I think, with each, both like my, with my UK publisher, with my US publisher, um, and everyone that I've had contacts with, they've, they've just been really, it's been very clear that they have had my work, that it's not just the work that they're interested in, but me as a person too. So,
1: how many jobs did you
3: So, the, I've told the story a few times. So, like, when I started, from like um, May till like June, I was, I was just, just writing every day. Like I, I would wake up, um, I used to work at the Apple store in Regent Street, um, like their big flagship store. And I'd wake up before my 7 a.m. shift and at like four and I'd write until, until it was time to work. Or I'd like come home after like a 10 p.m. shift and I'd write until, until the night. And so after that month, I had like a really solid first draft. Um, and I sent it to my agent and I went on holiday and I was like, I was feeling really confident about it, and I was just like, man, like you know, this is my this is my thing. Like I've been like I've been waiting for this moment to do this, um, and I came back from holiday, and my agent like sat me down, and she was just like, this is not it. This is she was just like, this is this your. She was like, I know you can write, but this isn't the direction you need to go in. Um, so at the beginning of June, I started again, and that that like second draft was the was really like the bulk of what Open Water is today. I'd say like. Altogether, so there was that second draft, and then when I sold it, it went through another draft with my UK and US editor, and then you get to a stage where it gets turned over to like the copy reading and the proofreading team. The copy editor's job is to make sure that things are making sense. So like, if I say something happened on on, mo- on a Monday and I'm in the present tense, then I shouldn't suddenly be in like the Saturday. Like they they kind of check for continuity. And then the proofreader really checks for grammar. Um so altogether, five drafts I would say, before before it reached this stage.
1: Question. Um yeah, I was gonna say were you ever like relevant in the whole publishing process? Obviously, this is your first mm-hmm. um and obviously you
3: haven't really gone through the whole publishing process before mm-hmm. and having like sort of a big company like Penguin, sort of being interested. Were you ever like nervous about that? Yeah. Um wasn't nervous until the, the first time that nerves really set sat in was on, was on my publication day, like maybe like three minutes before my launch event, um, which I was doing with a friend mm-hmm. and we were, it was on Zoom, unfortunately, because it was in the middle of a lockdown, um, but we were both kind of like, we were in the Zoom room with two other people who were preparing mm-hmm. us to go, to go onto the main stage and um, and they both asked, they asked us how we were both feeling. We both looked at each other and we were like, man, I'm really nervous. Are you? I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm really nervous. And I think that was the first time that I was like, ah, oh, this, this, this really matters. This really means a lot to me. Um, but I will say that, you know, the, the team around me has been, very, has been really instrumental in making me feel comfortable, and there's, there's not a point where I haven't been able to be like, I don't understand this, or I would like to do this, how do we make this happen? And if it's possible, then we'll make it happen. Um, I would say the, I get nerve sometimes with, um, when there's like a competitive nature introduced to it, because for me, like I'm, something I'm still wrangling with is mixing this form of artistic expression with commerce, with business. Um, and often there are, you know, there are prizes, or there are kind of like lists that happen, or there are you get told how many copies you're selling um, and that introduces the nature of commerce to your to your artistic work um, and so on occasion if there's like a prize that I'm longlisted or shortlisted for then like I'll get nervous because I'm like this this is, while it's not a reflection of what my work is, like I still like to win <laughs> um, and so I get nervous before that but otherwise <laughs> it's it's uh, this work means so much more to me than just than selling books, it's like a it's an honest expression of of the person that I am. Him than you. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <Yeah. laughs> he came first. <past> What's <laughs> the success rate with authors um, taking books to publishing? Is that quite a good
1: success rate?
3: In terms of, like, writing a book and then taking yeah, yeah, it to yeah. publication. I couldn't tell you what the, what the stat sure. is, but it's, yeah, it's like, it must be less than 1%. Yeah. Sure.
2: So many books, some only read the first hundred
3: pages and if your story doesn't kick off early then you're dropped. So it's each person's different, but the success rate is really quite It's really low. It's really yeah. Low. I will say that um and I was gonna get to this later, but uh before I found my literary agent in that in May of twenty nineteen, I'd already submitted to like thirty or so different agents. And had a like a range of responses from like agents who just didn't get back to me or people who read the work and they they kind of like this this isn't for me um which is fair because i think an agent has to really believe and love the work um to people who really love the work but they couldn't see where they would place it in the market they didn't know if there would be an audience for the work um and so that was that was a whole process in itself like having to having to continue to believe that my work deserved the place in in the public form.
2: This young have a question. <laughs>
0: um, you said that the, the art mm-hmm. is going to win over commerce. Mm-hmm. And an uh, extension to the question that I was asked earlier about how I kept my sort of focus and kept myself out of the comfort zone. Mm-hmm. How are you going to ensure that the art always
3: wins over the commerce? I think. My, my default when, in any situation, is to pick up a book. Like when we were on the way here, like I was, just, I was in the back just reading. Like I think so much, of, so much of my work emerges from the fact that I really love what I do. Um, and that I would do it even if I wasn't being published. Like I would, I would continue to write because there, there isn't another option for me. Like these stories have to be told. There are stories, there's the stuff we were talking about earlier you know those things have to be told. There are stories that all of you have that need to be expressed and, and need to make their way out into the world. And for me, that mode of expression is writing. But it might be something different for other people. It might be photography. It might be filmmaking. It might be another form of expression that doesn't even necessarily fit into like quite traditional mm-hmm. molds. But you know that that's your way of expressing yourself.
0: I can't guess that. <laughs>
3: I think, yeah, so much of my writing is for me first, and then after that, everything else is a bonus. So, like, there are two answers to that question. Re- rejection, I tried to, I tried to, like, feel everything out and work out, like, why I'm feeling this way about a specific thing, because I don't think rejection is blanket. Like, I think so often it's, like, there's something specific as to why some, like, this thing means something to you. So, like, the the BBC prize that I was talking about earlier, Um, like, the, I didn't win, then it was between me and and someone else, and... I got a phone call about it at like the last possible minute, and i was really i was really upset like i was just i was very much like ah uh, i I was so sure about that story, and it felt like it like everyone else felt so sure about it um but I had to remind myself that it didn't detract from the work like it was it was still a story that I needed to tell at that specific point, and it's still a story that I'm so proud of um and it's something that that was almost that was almost a year ago and people still contact me to, to say that they heard my story on Radio 4 or on BBC Sounds Um and it's not something that I ever expected and so so often I think me dealing with rejection is, has meant me like reconfiguring what success means to me and it's not just the kind of like you won or the like the traditional ideals of like you sold x amount of copies but it's like did you express what you needed to and did it touch someone else. That that for me is a success. Um I can't remember what the other part of your question was. How we you of like, move forward
2: from when you get to a something that really goes like what
3: do you what do you do to improve it how do you decide whether you're just gonna kind of discard that mm-hmm. piece of work? What do you what do you do when someone says this isn't what for? Um first I consider who it's come from because 'Cause I'm like, do I do I trust the person or do I trust that voice? I had a really, I had a really bad review of Open Water in, like in my publication week from the Irish Times. And when my publicist pressed the woman, she confessed that she hadn't read the book. She'd just read the blurb. <laughs> so, yeah, so she w- so it was very much like I remember reading it and just being like, it doesn't sound like my book at all. Um, for me it was like I felt in I felt I felt fortunate to be in a position I was in where it was like it was one bad review out of like 20 that week which were all really positive but the but in like isolation that's just that's really terrible practice um but I remember that day like thinking for a few hours like what like what was it about the book that I didn't do right because it was my first like bad public review and I um and it really took me Understanding that I have to think about who ha- who has like, approached the work and is this a voice that I'm like okay like I trust this or I really respect this voice um, and if it is like in the instance of my agent saying that I should start writing this book again then how do I how do I regroup myself how do I separate my ego from the work how do I how do I say to myself like okay well this person has your best interests how do we just how do we absorb this hurt for like for a brief minute and then and then move away from it. Um, yeah, and I think so much of so much of that process is is me like really asking myself how how do I feel?" and being really honest with, with myself about that, and if it is a feeling of hurt, then allowing myself to feel that and then work for it. I think one of the no and I think one of the reasons that it took like a decent amount of time for my work to find a placement is because I refused to change the way that I was writing because I knew that this was I knew that this was the this was my voice like i I very much understood that this was my voice and this was the way that I wanted it to be heard um I think so often. Like on the on the subject of reviews, like I, there's a there's a website called Goodreads, which like, you're which you're told as a writer never to look on, because it's just like it's anyone can review your book from anywhere in the world, and it's some of the reviews there were like abysmal. Um, like it's got like a, it has like a really I think it has like a 4.4 rating out of five. Um, but like I saw a couple of the reviews. One of them was just like it said in like capital letters, it was like "sigh." no and I was like what does that mean like, can I have an improvement on that what is like what is that um yeah so I think that so I think so often like, you're not going to please everyone and that was something that I had to rem- like I have to continually remind myself that the work will always resonate with the people it's it's meant for um and everyone else after that is is a bonus I feel when I'm writing, it's when I feel the most vulnerable, um, I will say. That's like, I think because the work is so personal because I'm always encouraging myself to be as honest as possible. Um, there's, yeah, there's a level of vulnerability that I that I feel when I get to the desk and I'm writing. But I also know that when I am at my desk and I'm writing, I'm like one of my best selves because I am being as, as honest as possible. Um, and there's definitely uh there have been lots of occasions and certainly when I was writing open water, there were loads of occasions where like i like I did feel like overwhelmed with the emotion and like often would kind of like cry as I was writing it but like so I understood that i i understood that like i was i was telling the story that I needed to, and even if sometimes that was difficult or it hurt that it was necessary for me to do so it I think it does take a for anyone writing or, or involved in some form of artistic expression, it takes a form of courage, it takes some bravery to like actually say to yourself, "Oh like i can sh- I can show up today and and I could write something about myself or about something that I know or about something that i 've seen or something that I want to express um, and yeah i apl- I applaud anyone who, who tries who <laughs> could like a- like anyone who tries because I think that that for me is like the work is. The work for me is not the finished product, it's the process, it's the trying. Like, I'm always trying. Um, Yeah, I hope that answers your question.
2: (laughs) You're welcome. Does anyone ever ask about your background and where you, you know, the context is always key when people are talking about writers? Mm -hmm. Uh, Did they ask about where you went to school? Oh, because you went to public school.
3: Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, the, the, uh, publication there had an interview that was arranged at the last minute with the times radio um and they had off obviously done like a, a lot of digging <laughs> before they'd come into the interview and i'd come in i'd come in blind because i didn't know what to expect um and they yeah they were very much like you know we we know that you're like from southeast london and that you went to you went to an independent school and a scholarship and you know like they were kind of like asking they were asking these very specific questions about my about my background and had found out some information about my parents journalists wild um but it for me like it's it doesn't really it doesn't detract from it like i always know that people are going to have questions about my background or who i am or like where i've come from and how and then how the work has emerged from that um and for me it's important to acknowledge like my pis- my positionality like i like I grew up in a i grew up in like the place that's equivalent of, of the, some of the photos that um that Jonathan was showing earlier like I grew up in, in southeast London in bellingham in Catford and had like really humble upbringings um, and had a mum who was insistent that I get a good education um, and so like went to this school that's not so dissimilar from this and didn't pay anything for it because of my scholarship which was like, yeah like is a real blessing but it also it doesn't change the person that I am it doesn't change where I come from um it doesn't change the stories that I feel insistent on telling um and I think I often have to remind people of that like it's it doesn't it doesn't shift that like need in me to tell stories and to express myself after publication, like I've been able to do like a lot of events and festivals. This was maybe like three weeks ago at uh, Charleston Festival, which is down by the coast. Um, I was really pleased at that moment because they gave me the aux cord and they just let me play music of my own, which was really fun. And, like, there's a lot, there's a lot of music in in open water. Um, and yeah, it's been a real privilege to. I mean, even something like this to like be like in front of you guys. It's, it's been a real privilege to actually like be doing, like, public-facing stuff. Um, as I said earlier, like, Open Water will be published. Uh, it's been published in, like, US and Italy and the UK, and will be published in these countries as well. Um, let's see. So I'm also a photographer. Um, I take a lot of portraits of black people just in their own space. Um, I really insist that I both, think both in my writing and my photography and giving black people the space that they need to be themselves and to be honest so i often don't do too much direction unless there's something like glaringly obvious um but i will yeah like i will kind of i will kind of like set my camera and and just spend like a couple of hours with people and just ask them like essentially like who are they like who like who do you want to be um so these are a couple that's my little sister on the left um and that's a writer on the right called Troy. These are a few more. Um, these are some of my photographic influences, uh, and actually just writing influences. So, um, Roy De Craver is a jazz photographer from Harlem in New York. who photographed people in like the 50s and the <coughs> 60s. Um, and then that is is like my hero. She's a... She <laughs> yeah she she's like
2: yeah.
3: yeah she's yeah it's kind of like she's amassed this world of her own in her in her mind and just like expresses how she's feeling through painting, which is all yeah it's just incredible to me um and I'm also, yeah, I'm also occasionally a filmmaker. Um, this was a trailer that we made for uh, for the book when it was coming out that Justin actually produced um, on a really tight schedule. So thank you, Justin. So I'll show you this, which is a minute long, and then I'll be done.
2: I just don't know how to
3: find and that's me
0: Yes, you are. are.